DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. Hi, my name is Sierra Thompson, and this is the Gen Z episode of the Donald Thompson Podcast. Today, I have Kaya Counter and Ben Codrington with me today to talk about Generation Z and the things we find important to us in the workplace. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to let our guests introduce themselves. We'll start with you, Kaya. Hey, I'm Kaya. I am just finished my first year of my master's in international affairs. I'm specializing in health, displacement, and humanitarian policy. I'm currently a research assistant for two professors, uh, researching health and gender, and then the other position is researching Canadian diplomacy and foreign policy. And next week, I start another job at Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship Canada. So very busy. Awesome, and congrats on the new job. Thank you. All right, and Ben? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a recent grad, graduated uh, roughly a month ago now from Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. And uh, I studied computer science with a specialization in software design. And uh, yeah, also last week just started uh, a new position as well at a company in Toronto. Cool. Yeah, and then a little more on me. I'm also a recent graduate um, from Appalachian State University with a degree in broadcasting and electronic media, um, hoping to pursue a career in television production. So let's jump into this Generation Z conversation. Um, Kaya, how old are you? I'm 23, just turned 23. And Ben, how old are you? Same. 23 as well? 23. So, since this is a Gen Z conversation, what do you want to know, what do you want older generations to know and understand about working and communicating with someone who's probably younger, like yourselves? I haven't had any experiences where I've been working with someone older and it's like the age barrier hasn't been much of an issue in terms of our productivity. It's more just like how much do you have in common? But I think the thing that would be most important to me in the workplace is like the older person, specifically who's more senior and in charge is like, flexible and open to new ideas because 
younger employees are just coming from an entirely new generation, a new education, and I think that they can add a lot of value. So when you give them a platform to prove their worth kind of and express their ideas, rather than assuming that they can only do menial tasks, like you don't have to give them a huge amount of responsibility for them to really shine and show you the new skills that they can bring to the position, especially with like the fields that Ben and I are in like politics and tech, they're constantly changing. So I think that you have to have, give a platform to youth to actually get kind of the newest ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And just to add on to that, I think like anytime the, um, you know, generational titles are thrown around, I think the generational divide is a little bit overemphasized and, and overhyped. I think that like we're not so different from where uh, people from older generations were at our age mm. at this point in their lives. I think um, like we're all, we're all just trying to achieve our full potential and do the best that we can. Well, of course, our priorities are all slightly different and our biases are slightly different as well, but we're all just trying to do the best in our current situation and do good work and uh, do it sustainably. Yeah, Ben, that's a really interesting comment you made. Like, I, I wonder if it would help older generations to kind of just simply reflect back on what it was like for them to be 21 or 22 and just entering the workforce. I'm sure it's like really easy for someone to make it in whatever career path they are in, make it, whatever that means. But, um, and then forget all the hardships that come with just starting out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of going off of that, are there any like Gen Z or millennial stereotypes that really bother or annoy you guys? Yes. <laughs> I was just talking about this this morning. I don't think that it's necessarily fair to assume that every person who's under 30 is a tech expert. Like, I'm always happy to help people and, like, teach them Zoom or whatever it is if I can, but I'm not the most technologically advanced individual, and I think it puts undue pressure on younger people, but more than that, if it's really outside the scope of what you're supposed to be working on, it can kind of, like, change the relationship with your superiors when they're always calling you for help on something that you're really not trained to do. Yeah. Oh, man, and it's, it's very relevant to that as well. Uh, we're currently recording this on Zoom. I didn't know you could record through Zoom. I advised my father recently to download a separate program to record a Zoom call, so. And, and I <laughs> and consider myself tech. a tech, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you're a younger person trying to prove yourself, you kind of can't say no. Like, it's I've true. definitely agreed to teach someone something and then secretly gone to learn it myself <laughs> to make sure that I can, like, keep up that um, reputation that, yes, you should have hired me, even though I'm only 23. That's a really so, good point. Yeah, good point. It's, it's actually kind of a superpower to have that assumption about you because then you can have that uh, confidence before competence thing where it's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll figure this out for you and then go do it. And now you've got a new skill and you've proven yourself in a new workspace or, or wherever you are. That kind of leads into my next question. What are you looking for in your next opportunity? Yeah, I, I can go first. Um, I, so I, I recently ju just got hired uh, last week. So if my new employers are listening, um, <laughs> no, no plans to look for a, a, a next opportunity in the near future. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to and hoping to grow a lot at my new position. Um, so yeah, I'm a new grad. And so I have uh, some skills, but there's obviously still a lot to learn. Um, and I'm hoping to do that at this company. I think it's a very it's, it's kind of a smaller company in downtown uh, Toronto, and I think they're going to do a good job with accommodating growth. I think they uh, have a lot of capacity for um, 
you know, training and collaboration and uh, bumping up responsibilities to a point where it just, um, yeah, it's, it supports that growth that every new hire wants. Um, so that's why I'm not actively looking for a new opportunity, but I think it should I, uh, like if, if, and when I did decide to look for a new place, it would be because the place that I'm currently at is no longer supporting that growth or there's no, like I've hit some sort of ceiling, um, whether it's managerial or systemic. Yeah. So Ben, I kind of want to ask when you were looking to join this company, what like drew you to it? Um, so it, it, it checked a lot of the boxes that I guess I, I have in my head um, when looking for a new position. Um, uh, number one, it was, uh, you know, close to home. It was, uh, you know, decent salary. It was just kind of the basics where uh, it, it's at least an option. Um, but then on top of that, um, they're doing a lot of very important work from my perspective. It's a lot of um, very globally conscious humanitarian style work. And uh, so I'm in a field where it can kind of bleed into a lot of different fields and you can do a lot of different kinds of work, right? Tech is everywhere. And pick a place to apply my, um, to apply myself and to grow more. I was really, you know, the, the ideal would be somewhere where I feel I could be doing a lot of good with that rather than, you know, uh, making some pretty buttons for, you know, a dating app or something like that, where it might be an enjoyable job. It might be, it might pay well, all of those things, but I didn't feel it would me as much job satisfaction at the end of the day. So. That's, that's interesting to hear. It sounds like, um, you know, doing something that's purposeful kind of leads into what makes you feel satisfied in your work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kaya? Um, I think that I'm really hoping to get more responsibility in my future positions because I'd like to be in some kind of a position of leadership in the future when I'm actually qualified to do so. But the sooner that you start giving younger people those kind of opportunities to even be in charge of one small thing, but to be the sole presenter or the sole researcher or whatever it may be, I think really starts to build your confidence and prove your competencies on a more specific level. I've been like studying gender-based analysis and like gender mainstreaming policy for like five years of my education, but I've never gotten to implement it in a professional setting. So it's a tool that I know that I'm very capable of using, but haven't gotten to yet. And if you work for the Canadian government, gender-based analysis is mandatory in every single piece of policy that they put out. Wow. So there is a very like a clear cut space for that kind of work. You just have to get into it. So once I graduate, hopefully I'll be able to pursue something a little bit like that in my skill sets. Cool. So Kaya, what do you, what would you like look for in picking a position in terms of like the people you're surrounding yourself with? Um, you know, you kind of said you want to be able to be given a, a certain authority. Is, is there any, anything else you look for? I think that I am very interested in departments or companies that get things done. Like I like fast paced. I like to be busy a lot. And I understand the importance of bureaucracy, but the more red tape that you can cut away from a position and actually um, interact with other people to coordinate and get things done really appeals to me because I like to be able to be a part of a project, understand my role, understand all the pieces and see something from start to finish. Cause that gives you like a lot of sense of uh, fulfillment when you complete something. And also you don't have to like 
exaggerate on your resume or anything like that. You don't have to feel like you didn't gain skills when you're like completely embedded in a fast paced office environment. I think that you gain skills and you might not even realize it's happening till six months out. Yeah. And you know, when you're kind of saying like no red tape, that kind of reminded me of when you were talking about flexibility and just workplaces kind of letting us do the work that we can do and them sort of having this trust in us, even though we're mm -hmm. younger or just starting out. Absolutely. And in, in uh, the tech sector as well, I think there's a more distinct dichotomy than there is in a lot of fields where um, there are tech companies that are traditionally older and larger and things like that, that haven't updated. And there are fewer and fewer of those as time goes on because they either die or update. Um, but in a lot of tech, there is kind of uh, the instinct to run it as you would any other traditional business. Um, but because of the nature of technology and how apps have so many daily users who are expecting so many features and changes and updates, and there's, there's an ever expanding list of expectations for a modern, usable, enjoyable app and endless competition, um, you really need to find a business process that lines up with that. So uh, in my experience, the most enjoyable and effective way to work has been something called uh, Agile, which I'm not sure exactly how much it's spread outside of the tech sector or whether it even initiate, uh, initiated there. But basically, it's this idea that you have a small team um, responsible for either an entire app, depending on the size of the company, or a smaller subset of the app. But like Kaya said, there's that sense of ownership. So you have um, agency to uh, make changes that you think are right as a team, and you have that uh, sense of responsibility so that if something goes wrong, everyone wants to tackle it and fix it together. Um, and so to get back to your original question, if you're working in a place where um, first of all, that system is implemented and your teammates are all on board, it can be really motivating and uh, energizing to work with people who are aligned to the same goal and uh, sort of set up to, or, or positioned to um, optimize their effectiveness at getting to that goal um, from a variety of disciplines. Yeah, I, I mean, what's really interesting is, um, from that, it's called Agile. Yeah. They use it in the government too. It's okay. really cool. It's like a project management strategy, I guess. Okay. Well, what I was hearing from that is just this teamwork factor. I think um, what Gen Z has to offer to workplaces is our ability to work well with other people really a little easier than maybe older generations. And we kind of are more accepting of different ideas and different ways of doing things. Um, what kind of like teammates do you guys look for? Like when you guys are put on a team, who do you, who are you excited to work with? Like people who are um, just as motivated as you or what kind of different traits do you need when you know that you're maybe not fully capable of completing a project? I think that in my experience, especially with like school group projects where the stakes are really high, you have a tight deadline, something's worth 50%, especially in a master's degree, there's a lot of group projects like that. I had to work on one group project this semester that was 23 people so kind of like a more like an office setting almost when you're working on one deliverable with that many people I think that something I don't look for is people who try and make it all about them because that can really just slow your progress everyone has something to contribute and I think a good leader has to be able to step away from the spotlight and listen to other people and actually take turns even if you are the guiding force and then normally when I'm picking people to work with in a group 
I want to pick people that I know are reliable because even if they have different strengths or work in different ways than I do, like for example, I'm really not a procrastinator. As long as you know that they're going to be there to deliver their component of the project, I think that's the most important thing like that you can actually rely on them and that they're dependable. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Kai said. Reliability is really key. Um, I think and I can't speak for everyone on this, but I'm sure that there is a subset of the generation that is uh, sort of in the same boat where I, I'm starting to discover that what I want more from a team is a sense of, I think I want it to be more casual than a lot of workplaces have been previously. I've really enjoyed places where, you know, in the first few days of onboarding, for example, uh, I can be you know, vulnerable and open and ask a lot of questions and express my ignorance in uh, the new system or in a specific aspect of the work and have people who are going to relate as people who have also been through this before or just as on a, on a human level, just to be okay with being vulnerable and as a result, uh, become closer with that person and, and make it closer to friends than uh, than maybe traditional workplaces would recommend. And I, I know that that's probably a kind of a divisive statement because I know people that absolutely, they want work to be work. Um, but for me, I think a, a really close team will be uh, accentuated by the interpersonal relationships within it. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's generational, which is really interesting because um, we, or most young people that I've spoken to, they wanna do something that matters. And so they want to work with people that they care about, at least a little bit, um, while still sort of maintaining the separation. But I think more young people nowadays are willing to like turn their passions into their careers. And so those things that they really care about and the people that they're really working with, they really care about. It's not just like a nine to five working in the office. When you go home, you don't care about work anymore, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and the fact that you're driven by a common goal makes it that much easier to be friends with that person. Yeah. Sure. And you don't have to become best friends to take an intern to lunch on their first day and introduce them to everyone in the office because you have no idea like what connections can be made from just little interactions like that. And I think it's just like common decency to at least be really cordial together and work together because people are more likely to do favors for you or cut you some slack when you need it when you've gotten to know each other on a little more personal level. And I think that that just makes an office more productive in general. So kind of switching gears a little bit. What are some brands or companies that you guys admire and why do you admire them? One of the ones that I didn't have to do research on that I just knew I already appreciated. This doesn't actually apply to me, which I think it stands out a lot as a consumer that I still appreciate this brand and it's not relevant to my life at the moment. It's called Freedom Mom. Freedom Mom provides products for women who are postpartum. So a lot of different things that you might need after you've given birth. And the thing that I like most about them is that they try and pair education with their products. So on their social media and on their Instagram, as well as the commercials that they run, is a lot of work to break the stigma about what women go through after they've given birth and try and make people more open to talking about it. Because not only does it take a serious toll on your health, but it's also an emotional thing that a lot of women go through. And Freedom Mom had a campaign that they tried to run as a commercial during the Olympics and the Olympics wouldn't let them. So I think since then they've really amped up their education and they're reaching out to the community in general to try and get people to talk about this thing more because 
seeing them get shut down, even though like lots of celebrities like use this brand and things like that shows that this is like an essential company that still has a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So what makes you like feel like you can trust this company? Like what do they do? And like, you know, you said you like how they're educational. So you know that they really know what they're talking about. They're not just pushing mm -hmm. a product. But um, what other qualities do you like value from them? I mean, I think that they're highly female run, which I always appreciate. Like, mm -hmm. even if the product didn't have to explicitly do with women, I trust companies that are aware of inclusivity, even if they don't make any kind of rule about it being female run, which really isn't that common. Having the eye for diverse hiring, I think, just makes a company more likely to represent the people that it's going to be selling things to. And I think that that's the key to not only being successful, but being honorable, I guess, like being a company that's worthy of consumer trust. Maybe, maybe I'll look at this question from a more niche perspective. Like as a software developer, um, there's like this entire sort of tension that's going on in the industry where um, there's frankly not enough uh, developers for the need for developers. And so uh, a lot of companies, especially companies that are uh, tech specific, rather than, um, for example, like a, a bank that would have a banking app, but their main thing is banking, mm -hmm. um, are, are trying to figure out what attracts developers and what how they get um, the best talent. And so from my perspective, let me mention a couple of companies that stand out to me and why. Um, so the, the first and most obvious one is uh, Google. And obviously, Google has uh, its own set of problems and issues. And uh, these are kind of unavoidable when you're a company of that scale. Um, but what impresses me and draws me in about them is that they have this uh, incredibly wide spectrum of products and services that they offer, but at a consistent level of quality. Mm. Um, and that simply can't happen without excellent management that understands the work that is being done and needs to be done rather than, uh, you know, a, a company that knows they need some sort of tech stuff, but they, they don't know what's the best way to go about implementing that. So that's kind of like a, a green flag. What is a red flag is, um, and uh, Kai has heard me talk about this before, is uh, a company like uh, Apple. So those are obviously the, the two big ones. Um, they've obviously also got this consistent um, level of quality, this, this bar that they consistently surpass with their wide spectrum of products. So that, that's impressive as well, but they've got sort of a different philosophy. At least that's how it appears to me as a, a potential uh, applicant or something like that, where uh, they've got sort of a, a walled garden mentality where they've got, um, they're, they're really happy building this excellent ecosystem for Apple users. But for example, as a developer, uh, if I want to make an Apple app, I won't be able to test it unless I have an Apple device. I won't be able to make an uh, iOS specific device unless I have a Mac to develop on. Things that, um, you know, Google who makes Android would allow anyone with any computer to run Android Studio and, and develop that way. So it's this, it's the sort of spirit behind that philosophy where they're saying uh, intentionally or otherwise that they're less interested in working together with everyone and more interested in doing their thing and doing it well, admittedly. But um, that stands out to me as differentiating companies that are doing similar work is how are they doing it and how interested are they 
in doing it with the world. All right, so if you guys had a magic wand and you could change anything in the world, what would you change and why? You can go first, Ben. Okay. Um, okay, so I don't know. You say magic and I immediately think like some kind of superpower. Um, <laughs> I, in a very like practical sense, in, in trying to, I don't know, optimize the most good that this magic wand can do with it one shake, you know, without wishing for magic, more magic wands or anything like that. Um, I think it would be to give people the ability to express themselves 100% accurately and succinctly. So like in my experience, like 90% of problems come from, um, yeah, just people not being aligned towards a common goal. And that that's usually, well, it's often a fact, fact uh, factor of miscommunication or not understanding someone's motivations for something. So uh, this is something that you don't actually need a, a magic wand for uh, to do in your own life, right? You can take the time to uh, really listen. There are great books out there about this specifically um, that you can look into for uh, specifically just trying to find out why someone is saying the thing they're saying and what they hope to gain from that. Um, it sounds kind of insidious when you say it like that. Oh, what, is, what are your hidden motivations? But the fact of the matter is when you're in human society, you can't, it doesn't make sense to constantly walk around shouting your motivations from the rooftops. But if we had this magic wand, then it would make sense and people would do that and the world would be better for it. Oh yeah, I can so get behind that. And I, I liked how you said succinctly, like just people being able to express yeah. themselves in like, you know, clearly, and so that everyone can maybe understand how they're feeling. Um, I And then you kind of said how we can do better at sort of listening to each other, but what do you think our generation or older generations could do to get better at just expressing themselves? Is that just about being more vulnerable or? Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of went back and forth on this because my, my instinct is to say that what's more important than expressing yourself is listening to other people for them expressing themselves. But I don't know if your magic wand could let you read anyone's thoughts that comes with its whole, with a whole slew of problems. <laughs> um, so let me, let me think the, the number one thing that I would recommend for being able to express yourself more succinctly, I would say is, um, trying to build a sense of trust with the people around you. So you're able to express your real feelings more accurately when you know that you won't be punished for it or judged for it. Um, and so recognizing that um, people most of the time won't judge you for saying, uh, for expressing that you don't know something or that you are nervous about um, you know, a presentation or anything coming up, People will relate. We've all gone through the same things. Mm -hmm. And as, as soon as you start doing that, even once, as soon as you say, uh, look, hey, I really don't understand uh, databases. Can you just give me a, a primer so that I can work on that better with you? People will appreciate that openness. People, people will respond positively and you'll see that they responded positively and you'll see that it's okay to be open. And it's kind of a, a positive spiral. So, okay, this is going into the fact that you guys both live in Canada. We do. Indeed. Kaya, where are you right now? I'm in Ottawa, which is the capital. 
right. I'm and right next to Parliament. And I'm in Toronto, which is the real capital. <laughs> which everyone thinks. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, Ben, you might not be able to speak to this as much, but you, you can kind of just say what your guess is, or Kaya, you can kind of speak to it a little more, but what is the cultural differences in workplaces in America and Canada that you've noticed? I don't know if Americans are going to appreciate this, but <laughs> <laughs> I have dual citizenship, so I think I'm very entitled to express my opinion on this. People here have better access to healthcare and to childcare, so it makes it easier for both parents to work or to take off time if they need to get their child into the doctors or something like that. And it just, it gives people the tools they need to succeed and it gives it to both genders equally. And it's, it ignores any income differences that people might have because we have universally guaranteed healthcare. And if your workers aren't healthy or they're distracted by their sick child or one of them has to stay home and a household only has one income, just as a society, you're going to be worse off. Something that I don't know if Americans know or not is that we have two official languages, English and French. And since I've moved to Ottawa, because this is where the government is, everyone is pretty much bilingual. And so people really make an effort in government offices and in schools to be language inclusive. And people actually put in an effort to learn French, which I think would be interesting if the United States adopted Spanish as their second language because the high number of Hispanic people. It can be tricky when you're not bilingual, but I think it's harder for a Francophone who's a minority than an Anglophone because things are quite tailored to Anglophones here. And it is kind of cool to see an office that's able to work in two languages because that also increases your international scope of like all the different countries in Africa plus France that you can have relationships with and speak their language. Because I'm in international affairs. So that's obviously like, that's just a gesture of kindness. If you can increase the number of languages you speak, it will make people more inclined to talk to you. Yeah, and what's interesting is actually, I think, like, America doesn't technically have a language that's our official language, um, which is interesting because Canada does, and then you guys are more inclusive, whereas America, we don't, and everyone's forcing English onto people, even though it's not. I didn't know that. I thought it was just English. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I know that, but I know it's like a trick question <laughs> on the citizenship exam. <laughs> Go going back to our... Uh our vocation about expressing your own ignorance. Um, I, until today, I thought that English and Spanish were the national languages of the U.S. So it's, it's, none of these things are really clear. <laughs> but yeah, Ben, do you have any thoughts or just yeah. from an outsider perspective? Yeah, so all I can do really is, is speculate on the future of these differences. Um, I think it's especially top topical right now, given that everyone is, you know, working from home and um, and and communicating with their team over the internet, and we're seeing um, more and more offices begin to shut down. Like, um, so Shopify, uh, I read recently, has uh, closed a number of their offices, uh, and they're and they're saying, well, a number of these co companies closed their offices for COVID, but they're saying that. Um, we're now a digital first company. And then the physical office space is kind of a thing of the past. Mm. So that has, that has a number of implications. And these are the, so Shopify did this, I believe Google has done this as well. Um, and I'm sure a number of others are following suit, but it's, this has uh, potential to really change the way we do business uh, to at the risk of sounding cliche. So I think as 
uh, Kai has identified some differences between Canada and the U.S. The, there are more and more teams uh, as we live in our modern age that are not Canadian teams or U.S. teams, but they're both or they're global teams more, more commonly, right? And the more this happens, the more there's less room for these uh, divisions and and. I expect that there will be standards that begin to arise, like a, a, a few languages that are established as you know, business languages, as English has been and as Mandarin is sometimes speculated to become. Um, and, and people just work in these languages regardless of where you are. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see the kind of uh, cultural standards that are adopted considering that people from the team will come from such a, a hopefully a diverse background. Or a set of backgrounds. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's really crazy to think about. But just the way that business is moving online is at the same time expanding business because now people are more open to doing these, you know, web chats and working from online. So maybe they're more open to hiring someone who's not even in the same country as them. Hopefully, I think I see it as a good thing. I think that uh, a lot of cool new partnerships will arise and a lot of. Uh, you know, collective growth will arise from it. The last thing that I would add is that Canada's minimum wage is double that of the United States. And I think that makes an astronomical difference on homelessness and poverty rates. But people are more likely to care about even their like most basic McDonald's janitorial job, whatever it may be, when they're getting paid a living wage for it. Whereas someone who might have the attitude of I can quit anyways, because you don't pay me well enough. I think it just makes people care more about their jobs and it shows that employers care about their employees as well. Yeah, and as we're seeing in COVID that those jobs matter and they should be paid a livable wage because they're the only ones that are still working. If you had to um, pick a dream job or where you see yourself in 20, 30 years where you're at a position where you're at things are the most ideal they could be for you. You're making the wage you want to make, benefits, all that kind of thing. What are, would you be doing? So I, I think so. Okay, let me refer back to the checklist that I alluded to earlier. Um, I have a bit of a framework that uh, Kai makes fun of me for, and also appreciates. Um, where it's, so it's less about um, you know any given company. I could throw out names now, but the fact of the matter is these things change constantly, um, and there are a number of factors that you want in any job, and it's different for different people. But I think I've kind of pared down to a list of a few that I think I really care about, and I'm sure a lot of people in my generation and in the workforce care about. Um, and I call them my pillars. And they're they're kind of the, the the pillars of sustainable work. So the, the idea being that. Not only is this a job that you can do, but it's a job that you can do for the foreseeable future and that you feel happy doing and that it's less even about happiness and, and more about, yeah, I think sustainability is the best word for it. So, so it's a little bit in sort of a uh, hierarchy of needs structure. So at the, at the base, there's um, just kind of short term um, sustainability in the sense of like you're able to meet your rent and food bills, things like that. Um, so that needs to be established because without that, it's not really an option. Moving on from that, there's the environment that you work in. This is a, a thing that I've discovered has really made a huge difference. Um, and I always reference that scene from uh, The Incredibles where uh, the lead Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, is working in, in this insurance firm, but 
uh, Disney lays it out perfectly. It's kind of like this endless sea of gray cubicles. Um, and I'm sure that there are some people that can relate to this where you could be doing the best work in the world, but if you're in that office, something about um, something in our, you know, lizard brain that's developed over millennia just feels like it's, uh, yeah, less significant, less enjoyable, less sustainable. It's less human and less natural. Um, the third pillar is the ability to do good now. And that's a very loosely defined good because that depends a lot on different people. But it's the ability to make some change in the world. I think that's a, a common one for me. The ability to um, directly help a specific group of people or something like that, um, prepare more for the future, things like that. Um, but that is kind of like the, the big one that a lot of people are like, oh, this is why I'm in this field is, oh, I want to, you know, make sure that in the next generation when, um, you know, everyone needs a basic tech literacy. I want to make sure that these developing companies have the education systems they need in place to ensure that they're not left behind when, um, you know, a, a lot of very uh, traditional jobs are replaced by machinery or, or whatever. And then the last one is gaining the ability to do good in the future. And I think this is especially relevant for our generation or, or this group of people that are just getting into the workforce now. And it's that sense of growth, that ability to recognize that I'm okay now and I can do some good work now, but I haven't reached my full potential and I won't get there without putting in some hard work with the right people for the right cause. Uh, and, and the day-to-day -day tasks that you're doing and getting experience with matter a lot. So I think you can get a, an immense amount of satisfaction. That's why people do, um, you know, certain volunteer positions is to check those boxes. Yeah, doing good, but also this is a marketable skill that will either allow me to get hired in the future or will allow me to do a good job better in the future. So those are my four pillars, which is like money, environment, doing good now and doing more good later. So Ben, you developed these pillars yourself. Like these are just your personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I had an in at the Bank of Montreal that I said. And when I got there, it was like kind of my first experience that was uh, in a real job. In, uh, and I did a lot of learning about what I like and what I think would make that job sustainable. Um, and it proved to be quite sustainable because it checked a number of these boxes. So um, yeah, they're, they're in under construction at all times and it's an ongoing process, but that's where I'm at right now. I would like to clarify, I, I am not making fun of Ben's pillar system. I think it's very great. It was just interesting when he presented this to me after a month at his internship, he had come up with a philosophy, which I am not the same. And I, I agree with all the pillars. I think they're excellent. But I think that my professional experience and my CV is pretty different from Ben's because I've had a lot more like freelance type of work. Like I've been an independent conference coordinator, an independent research assistant, an independent teaching assistant. So I haven't been in the office environment as much as Ben, but the times that I have experienced an office job, I would agree that the environment and the people that you work with can really shape your day to day. But I lean more heavily towards, I care less about that and more about the impact that I'm making because the nature of being in international affairs, specifically focusing on health and gender is you're trying to make people's lives better at the end of the day, either from bottom up or top down. You asked about dream job, right? That was the original question. Yes. Or was it? Yeah, that's what I thought. 
I thought so. Yes, yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for my rant. (laughs) Okay, it was a nice little deviation. But I think that, like I've always said, I'd be interested in being, not interested, I would dream to be the head of UN Women because I think that that's an institution that, while it has its own set of bureaucracy, it has an international reach and an international audience and it has work that is really important to me and that I would feel comfortable working in almost any aspect of UN Women because I know that their end goal is the same as my end goal. Ben and I recently also had a conversation where I toured the idea of being prime minister because I thought (laughs) maybe perhaps I could make more of an impact in Canada specifically at a position like that than I could in the entire world. Like I'm certainly one to bite off more than I can chew, but I'm also like really, really driven and I I'd like to complete things and do them well. And gender equality has been the thing that I would like to complete. So those are like two really high up, maybe like 40 years from now. Type yeah, thank you, Kai and Ben. Do you guys have any um, last thoughts on Generation Z in the workplace? Biggest thing for me is uh, I think Generation Z in the workplace is not that different from previous generations in the workplace. That said, I wasn't there. So <laughs> <laughs> I think just like whether or not it's Gen Z or millennials or whatever, integrating younger people or people in more junior positions into every aspect of a project that you can and letting them get the kind of that hands-on learning and feeling like they're contributing some to something and hearing about what other people around them are doing will really make you more of a cohesive team and will help that person grow professionally a lot faster than if you just make them get coffee and do copies, which is like, I know is a horror story, but I'm quite sure that that still happens today based off of some of my other young professional friends. And I think that young people have a lot of potential to rise above that and pretty quickly once you give them a chance to actually learn. Well, thank you guys for sharing your thoughts and opinions. Um, Yeah, this is it for the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much.